This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we begin our three-part discussion on Beowulf, uh, an anonymous, heroic narrative that some consider to be the oldest poem in the English language, but that is just uh, one example of how much scholarly disagreement there is about this poem. I mean, there's really not total agreement on if it's written in English. Uh, it, is it an epic or is it an elegy? Um, is it a good unified poem of an imaginative artist or is it just a rambling collection of folk tales? I mean, uh, there's only one manuscript in the world of Beowulf and it has no date and no title and no known author. And today, uh, you can find it in the uh, British Library in London and the manuscript is called the Knoll Codex after its first known owner, a man by the name of Lawrence Knoll, who lived in the 16th century. I wasn't sure if it was in a public exhibit, so I asked Chat GPT if the general public could see the manuscript of Beowulf. Do you want to know what Chat GPT's answer was? Yes, of course I do. Well, <laughs> it knows the author, I bet. <laughs> the all-knowing, all-encompassing chat GPT said it had no idea. And for me to check with the British Library's webpage. <laughs> Irony! <laughs> Even chat GPT has Beowulf baffled. Well, true, and the mystery continues. Uh, however, if you do visit the British Library's website, which I did, you can see pictures of it, which are really cool to look at. And uh, you can also listen to a scholar read it to you, um, although you can't understand a single word of it. Uh, the paper it's written on is burned around the edges because of an unfortunate fire in 1731. And Experts have calculated the age of the Noel Codex by analyzing the scribe's handwriting who copied it, but there's disagreement on that too. So basically, we know nothing for sure except that it exists. <laughs> well, I'll say this. The many voices and opinions, there is one voice that stands out among the rest. In fact, you can hardly Google literary criticism of Beowulf without bringing up the name J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, if you haven't listened to our series on The Hobbit, or if you 
haven't seen the Lord of the Rings, he created an entire world based on his understanding of Anglo-Saxon language and literature, primarily Beowulf, uh, and a world today that most of us call Middle Earth. He loved Beowulf, and when he looked to create a mythology for Britain, that is where he started. In fact, the people of Rohan, if if you're familiar with the story, are modeled after the people in Beowulf. Tolkien started reading it as a little kid. He fell in love with it. Later, when he taught Old English at the University of Leeds, he taught it. And in 1926, at the age of 34, he translated it. What's interesting about that, though, isn't so much that he translated it, but it was a personal translation that was put in a drawer, never published, and we wouldn't even known that it existed until Christopher Tolkien published it in the in May of 2014, if you can believe that. That's crazy. Why, why was it not published? Well, we don't know for sure, but we do know there are lots of parallels between Beowulf and The Hobbit. And this drew a lot of criticism from my students this year, by the way. They got upset to learn that large parts of The Hobbit came right out of Beowulf, especially the dragon Smog and his descriptions. <laughs> Well, did you tell them that the copyright has run out on the original? I did. And I said he'd be happy to share the profits from the movie if the original author would just identify himself. <laughs> well, he, uh, he has been kind of quiet about his identity. Uh, let's see, you know, for the last 1,000 years, give or take a century. Well, let me add this. Don't think that just because Tolkien never published his translation did not mean that he didn't have thoughts and public thoughts to say about it, because he did. In 1936, he delivered and published an essay titled Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics, and it was incredibly impactful. In fact, a Beowulf scholar, Dr. Tom Shippey, has said that the Tolkien essay, Monsters and the Critics, is not only the most cited essay on Anglo-Saxon literature in the world, but it's the most cited essay in all of English language scholarship. It was transformative. And what he had to say about the study of Anglo-Saxon literature, Beowulf specifically, but really reading of ancient texts in general and even fantasy. I mean, that that's really impressive. What was so special about that particular essay? Which was the question I had when I heard Dr. Shippey talk about it. And it turns out there's a lot. But the essay isn't the easiest thing I've ever read. And if you're struggling with insomnia, I think the essay might be an anecdote for you in some ways. It's free on the Internet. It's hard to read. Uh, But basically, he scolded all of academia that had ever existed previous to him because no one had really given Beowulf the respect as a poem that he felt it deserved. It had been cannibalized, really, and had been looked at as just an old piece of writing and whose main purpose was to give us understanding of history or culture or Anglo-Saxon language. Scholars didn't think the plot was very complex. You know, Beowulf isn't a character that's very psychologically developed. They hated all the digressions. Uh, they thought maybe these are just historical folk tales that have been collected. And I'll admit, it does get a little confusing at parts, and no one understands almost any of the allusions because they're not any or very many other surviving texts from the period. Who are these people that that Beowulf keeps referencing? Were they really legendary? Were they real people? Were they nothing? But Tolkien dismisses all of this criticism, and he argues it's not the poet's fault were ignorant of his illusions or his culture. How can you hold the poem or a poet from a thousand years ago responsible of our ignorance? 
Tolkien claims in his essay that to understand Beowulf, you have to change your paradigm on how you look at it. We shouldn't look at it as an epic adventure poem like the Aeneid, and we shouldn't read it looking for fancy speeches like they have in the Odyssey. Instead, we should think of it in terms of being an elegy. Uh so let's break that down. What is an elegy? Well, an elegy is a poem written in response to a death. It's a way for a poet to give voice to grief or loss. It's a tribute. It's a remembrance of the deceased. If we understand the poem as an elegy, you know, we don't have to have a big adventure. We don't need the main character to give big speeches. Instead, we're not looking for what it doesn't have, basically, is what Tolkien says. Let's look and clearly see what it does have and find the value and what the poet wanted us to understand. And of course, this is always linked to theme. Tolkien reminds us, his readers of the essay, that theme drives form, not plot. The main point may not be in the adventure or the motivations of the main character. Tolkien thinks it wasn't. Tolkien argues that what this ancient poet is saying about life is embedded in understanding the monsters. And Beowulf's interactions with the monsters are what we need to be looking at. Every artistic choice he makes centers around the monsters. Let's quote Professor Tolkien here as he talks about theme in Beowulf. Beowulf is not, then, the hero of a heroic play, precisely. He has no enmeshed loyalties nor hapless love. He is a man, and that for him and many is sufficient tragedy. It's not an irritating accident that the tone of the poem is so high and its theme so low. It is the theme in its deadly seriousness that begets the dignity of tone. I can't read Anglo-Saxon, but uh, he quotes it, but I will give you a translation. Life is transitory. Light and life together hasten away. So deadly and ineluctable is the underlying thought that those who in the circle of light within the besieged hall are absorbed in work or talk and do not look to the battlements, either do not regard it or recoil. Death comes to the feast, and they say he gibbers. He has no sense of proportion. I would suggest, then, that the monsters are not an inexplicable blunder of taste. They are essential, fundamentally allied to the underlying ideas of the poem, which give it its lofty tone and high seriousness. The poet of Beowulf is discussing what all literature discusses, all great literature. How shall we live? What's the nature of this world that we live in, and how should we confront it? How do we confront the monsters, the obvious monsters, the various versions of evil? These are lofty subjects. Those are pretty big questions. Well, they are. And there's a lot to learn from these 3,000 lines written sometime in the middle of the 7th to the 10th century. You know, give or take 300 years. But Gary, let's rewind a little before we get to talking about what the poem means. Let's give it some context. So it's written in the 700s more or less. Uh, We'll go with that year, at least that century. But it isn't about that century. It was written about a period of time, 200 years before when the writer of the poem wrote it. Now, that's a really long time before his life. So the author didn't really know the world he's describing. Not really. 
you know, true. And, and some of the historical things are anachronistic or, or out of context. Um, but the poem isn't set in England, nor is it about Anglo-Saxon people. Uh, Beowulf was written in England by a Christian monk about pagan people from an opposing country that lived 200 years before the writer did. And, you know, uh, that's strange. I mean, just for context, about 100 years before Beowulf is written, Pope Gregory sent Augustine with missionaries to the Anglo-Saxon kingdom uh, in the 600s to convert the Anglo-Saxons from paganism to Christianity. And, you know, one thing a lot of people don't realize about this is that this conversion process was nonviolent. And by the 700s, Britain was mostly Christianized and uh, people still had held and uh, practiced many superstitious beliefs, but they didn't identify as pagan. And of course, paganism isn't one specific set of beliefs, and there were differences across Britain, but paganism is polytheistic, and it's very influenced by the Vikings uh, and their Norse beliefs. You know, uh, chief among the gods was Odin. The Anglo-Saxons called him Woden. They would pray and sacrifice to him, and there was also Thunor, or another name for him is Thor. And these pagan gods are not like the almighty god of Christianity. Their paganism was fatalistic, which uh, is a recurring idea in Beowulf. And there's no Jesus coming to save people. There's no guarantee of eternal life. Uh, even Valhalla, Viking heaven, is fated to doom. Uh, so you can see that the pagans and the Christians looked at things very differently. And if you speak English, you have some cultural uh, vestiges of paganism, whether you realize it or not. Really? Here's a fun example. Um, the days of the week get their names from pagan gods. Sunday is the day of the sun, and Monday is day of the moon. And Wednesday is Wooden's day, and Thor's <laughs> day is Thursday, and Frigg's day is Friday. That's probably one of the better ones right there. <laughs> Uh, you know, and that's just one remnant of Anglo-Saxon paganism that is still embedded in our culture. And there are others, uh, and they're mostly harmless. Um, however, it is important to understand that paganism and really the entire world during this period is absolutely brutal and violent. I heard one professor say, um, you would feel very, very uncomfortable visiting an Anglo-Saxon pagan church service um, because they practice witchcraft and probably human sacrifice and like, likely even child sacrifice and you wouldn't think that a christian monk would create a pagan hero and you wouldn't think that a christian would write a poem exalting paganism or its values at all and you'd think the poem would say something like pagan beliefs are bad and christian beliefs are good but it doesn't no it honors the pagan values but i will say it only honors pagan values that cross over with christian values it you know it doesn't bring up the pagan values that conflict with Christianity. And in fact, there's a couple of places that it laments that, oh, these poor pagans and their hopelessness. For example, when Grendel, the first monster, attacks Herat, which is where the king lives, the poet laments that the poor pagans were praying to hell for salvation instead of heaven. So although Beowulf is not a Christian, we're reminded that the audience who is intended to read this poem was Christian. Well, let's talk about this poem being set in Scandinavia and uh, more specifically Sweden and Denmark. I mean, at the time the poet wrote the poem, uh, as well as the time period the poem is set, the world in this region is almost entirely tribal. Um, and the Vikings are invading England. Uh, but here we have a poet writing about a people who are conquering his people. And, you know, the Danes ruled the world, not all of England, but a lot of it. And they invaded England in the 8th century, and they were the winners. And 
the people in Britain were the conquered people, not the victors. And the victors went back to Denmark, um, if you want to think of it that way. And, you know, this is a violent process. And uh, kings conquered and they avenged drastically. But Beowulf is not a Dane, even though it is the Dane Mead Hall of Herat, where the, the uh, poet, sets, uh, poet sets his poem. And Beowulf is a Geats. The Geats as a people don't exist anymore. Uh, they've been absorbed into the Swedes. But at the time, they inhabited the southern part of Sweden. The king mentioned in Beowulf, Hegelak, is actually a real king. Well, I'm glad you point that out. He is real, and we know when he lived, which is how scholars have dated the poem. You know, Halak died in around five, 520. Well, the point I was going to make is that the Geats is also a conquered people. They don't exist anymore. And, you know, there's a Denmark and there's a Sweden, but there's not a Geatland. Uh, Beowulf is about a man who both his religion and his nationality are on the losing side of things. And the poet and a reader know this going into the reading. It's really unusual. Well, it is. And, And for many years, scholars just thought, well, Beowulf is just kind of a bad poem. But Tolkien and and many after him, and likely because of him, we don't think this anymore. My favorite translation is the one by Seamus Haney, published in 1999. Haney is an Irish poet. He won a Nobel Prize for his own poetry, not his translated work. But his translation is easy to understand, and it's the one that we're going to use today. It's not the translation, though, that's found in most high school textbooks. They use the Burton Raffle translation and that was published in 1963 it's the one that most people are familiar with there are a lot of translations for a poem that is written in english i guess we need to explain that it isn't really written in english well yeah that is a funny thing you know old english is definitely not english it's an entirely different language it's a germanic language if you go to the British Library website, you can listen to a scholar reciting it. We should, we'll should we put the link in, on the website. But you won't understand anything, almost a single word, except for maybe the word weird, because that's an Anglo-Saxon word that we still use. That's weird. <laughs> Old English is the Anglo-Saxon language that was spoken in England until the Norman Conquest in 1066. And that was where we get the introduction of French, which is a little easier, But, you know, Middle English is something that we don't understand very well. That's what Chaucer spoke, and he's considered the father of English literature. But we don't get to the kind of English that we can understand until early modern English. And that's what Shakespeare spoke. Although most students will tell you it's still hard to read, at least you can read it. It's clearly English. Well, uh, this is not what you experience when you read Old English. No, it isn't. And before Tolkien... Not everyone thought of Old English as something a regular English student should even study. In fact, that's part of Tolkien's legacy, and that's one of the reasons why he spoke so much about Beowulf. He wanted to justify its place in the part of a standard English curriculum course, which it wasn't until the 20th century. Uh, But Tolkien, as a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature and also as a dictionary writer, which is what he did, believed that words were cultural experiences, every single one of them, and each word is full of heritage. So even if you can't understand it, Old English is an indigenous language of England, so it's not a foreign language, it's an English language and should be considered part of the English language learning experience. 
token one the day, and so today most people will study English, will study Beowulf in their English language textbooks. That's all over the world. Well, Christy, uh, you kind of got off track talking about Beowulf and on to talking about Tolkien. Was that a digression? <laughs> yes, I digressed. Uh, and Beowulf has a lot of digressions, which brings us back to the structure of Beowulf. As I was saying before, I digressed uh, that Beowulf is the protagonist for sure, but he may not be the central idea of the poem. We know so little about the character Beowulf. We don't know anything about his thoughts. We don't know his character flaws, not really. We don't know about his love life. We don't know if he's married, if he had kids. Maybe he does. It doesn't say. We don't know hardly any of his other attributes, except that he's strong, courageous. Oh, he's generous. Uh, He doesn't have a special weapon. You know, swords are a big deal in this time period and in the story. Important swords, you know, they have individualized names and swords can have genealogies. Uh, There are dozens, well, there are dozens of different terms referring to swords just in the story. But Beowulf's sword isn't highlighted at all. We assume he has one because he must bring it to Herod at the beginning of the story, but he doesn't use it there. He only uses it 50 years later in his third fight, and when he does, it breaks. We're told who Beowulf's father is, but he isn't mentioned as a living person nor any other of his family members. Uh, Nothing in Beowulf's life is presented in detail except his dealing with monsters. Nothing is known about Beowulf except in the sense that he will bring order to chaos, but even that will be temporary. That is his fate, and that is our story. So let's open up Seamus Haney's translation of the very beginning of this poem. So the spear Danes in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. There was shield sheafson, scourge of many tribes, a wrecker of mead benches and rampaging among foes. This terror of the hall troops had come far. A foundling to start with, he would flourish later on as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. In the end, each clan on the outlying coast beyond the whale road had to yield to him and began to pay tribute. That was one good king. So we see early on the poem is about courage. It's about a good king and what makes a good king. But let's look at the details from this introduction. What does make a good king? Well, first of all, he's a scourge. He's a wrecker. (laughs) He rampages and he's a terror. I told you, these are violent times. Don't invite him to your party. (laughs) You know, I want to point out the use of the word whale road. It's not railroad, it's whale Uh, It's a literary device called a kenning. A kenning is when you take two words and make them into a new word that has a metaphorical meaning. So in this case, the whale road, that's another word for the sea. You know, kennings are not necessarily unique to Anglo-Saxon or Norse literature, but that's really the only place most people will see them. Uh, We're going to see in a little bit that a king is a ring giver because that's what kings do. They give gifts, and rings are important gifts in this culture. Some scholars think Beowulf's name is a kenning. Beo means bee, wolf means wolf. That's a bear. So he's a bear, which is a bee wolf. Uh, But there's no general acknowledgement on that. Another interesting kenning is the word for queen. The word for queen is 
peace weaver, which is interesting. That's a contrast, you know, the role of the male versus the role of the female uh, in this society. Afterwards, a boy child was born to shield, a cub in the yard, a comfort sent by God to that nation. He knew what they had sold, the long times and troubles they'd come through without a leader. So the Lord of life, the glorious Almighty, made this man renowned. Shield had fathered a famous son. Baal's name was known through the north, and a young prince must be prudent like that, giving freely while his father lives, so that afterwards, in age, when fighting starts, steadfast companions will stand by him and hold the line. Behavior that's admired is the path to power among people everywhere. I need to point out that the Bayo, that's not our Beowulf. This is a different one, and he doesn't have really a role in the story. You know, all of this beginning stuff is an origin story, but it's not Beowulf's origins. These are the origins of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's Danish, but S.H.I.E.L.D., as great as he is, is going to die here at the beginning. Notice also that he's generous. He establishes his authority by giving generously, an important and admired leadership trait, both by the Anglo-Saxons in the story and by the Christian culture of the poet who's telling the story. This is something that he admired in his ancestors, their generosity. Notice also the reference to the Christian God. This is the perspective of the poet, strictly. The characters in the story, they don't believe in Almighty God. They're polytheists, and they believe in many gods, but none of them are almighty. What the poet is implying is that God is active even in the world of men, if they, even if they don't believe in him. These men were good men, even though they're not Christian men. As the poet says, this is behavior that's admired as the path to power among people everywhere. Shield was still thriving when his time came and he crossed over into the Lord's keeping. His warrior band did what he bade them when he laid down the law among the Danes. They shouldered him out to the sea's flood, the chief they revered who had long ruled them. A ring-world prowl rode in the harbor, ice-clad, outbound, a craft for a prince. They stretched out their beloved lord in his boat, laid out by the mast, amidships, the great ring-giver. Far-fetched treasure were piled upon him and precious gear. I never heard before of a ship so well furbished with battle tackle, bladed weapons, and coats of mail. They massed treasure was loaded on top of him. It would travel far on out into the ocean's sway. So this is a funeral. Shield lived perfectly, and he's rewarded by his body being sent out to sea with a bunch of treasure in a ring-world boat. But even the boat gets rings. And all of this booty, man, I'd like to be a pirate in that ocean, <laughs> just oh, floating out on the water. I believe that the uh, the Danes would do you in. <laughs> that might be true. Uh, and so we have a poem about a character named Beowulf, but the poem doesn't open with anything about Beowulf or even Beowulf's family. And that's why it's confusing. It starts with a guy whose kid is named Beowulf, no relation. This is the kind of thing that made the critics' head spin back in the early days. Uh, They don't understand these illusions or the structure. So why do this? Tolkien says there's a thematic reason for it. It's not sloppy. It's purposeful. And just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it's not smart. Tolkien points out that there is a balance theme here. The poem opens with a funeral, and it will close with a funeral. The beginning funeral ends with water. We will see that the funeral at the end does not end with water. The story begins with a man who brings order to the world. The end of the poem will be Beowulf's funeral, and with with his death, 
chaos will be unleashed into the world. There is balance. There's contrast. When we finish with the funeral, the poet will go on to tell us about Shield's heirs, of which there are four. The one we care about is Hrothgar. Hrothgar is also a successful king. Let's read what the poet says about him. The fortunes of war favored Hrothgar. Friends and kinsmen flocked to his ranks, young followers, a force that grew to be a mighty army. So his mind turned to hall building. He handed down orders for men to work on a great mead hall meant to be a wonder of the world forever. It would be his throne room, and there he would dispense his God-given goods to young and old, but not the common land or people's lives. Far and wide through the world, I have heard orders for work to adorn that Wallstead were sent to many peoples. And soon it stood there, finished and ready, in full view, the Hall of Halls. Herod was the name he had settled on it, whose utterance was law. Nor did he renege, but dole out rings and torques at the table. The hall towered its gables wide and high and awaiting a barbarous burning. That doomed abided, but in time it would come. The killer instinct unleashed among in-laws, the bloodlust rampant. Then a powerful demon, a prowler through the dark, nursed a hard grievance. It harrowed him to hear the dine of the loud banquet every night in the hall, the harp being struck, and the clear song of a skilled poet telling with master of man's beginnings how the Almighty had made the earth a gleaming plain girdled with waters. In his splendor he set the sun and the moon to be earth's lamplight, lanterns for men, and filled the broad lap of the world with branches and leaves, and quickened life in every other thing that moved. I want to point out again how this is very archetypal and and I know this is a little psychological but uh but we see here the call of a leader you know the call of a king uh, his responsibility is to bring order out of chaos and you know there's even a reference um, I noticed to the Christian creation story and uh, as such the mead hall is the center it's the garden of eden so to speak of the world at this point well, that's exactly right. That's exactly what J.R. Tolkien said about it. Uh, Rothgard's making a garden or a heaven, however you want to define this you know, pretty peaceful coexistence, basically out of warring chaotic people. Uh, we do need to define a few terms. First of all, what is a mead hall? Now, a mead hall, this isn't a fictional creation that the poet made up. It's a thing that actually existed in a lot of early Germanic cultures. We recognize them, at least I do, if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, because that's another thing that Tolkien lifted and put right into Middle-earth. Middle-earth does have mead halls. <laughs> mead halls served an important social function during this time period. Um, mead halls were residences for the tribal leaders, but they were also centers for community life, you know, centered around uh, drinking mead or what we would call beer or cider. So, Think of them as beer halls or giant party rooms where the king lived. And uh, let me add this piece of trivia. Um, archaeologists in Denmark think that they have discovered mead halls near Copenhagen. And there's one that may actually be this one that's being described in the poem. Near the town of Lair, uh, archaeologists found seven mead halls. One of them is older and bigger than the rest. It has bones of all kinds of meat that were only available to the highest classes of people. Uh, they found gold and silver and bronze jewelry, including a lot of rings and a silver figurine of Odin. And, you know, it's a theory, but maybe it's possible that it's the setting of Beowulf. And Herod is mentioned um, in other pieces of literature. So, you know, it's possible it's a real place. 
Well, and that's uh, what I, why I liked bringing up when we were talking about King Harlock. You know, people don't think Beowulf is real, but the setting in some of these historical characters definitely were. So as this story goes, Harawat is amazing. It's large. It's beautiful. It's prosperous. It's happy. It's full of music. It's full of peace. You want to be invited to Harawat, but Grendel is an outcast. And as an outcast, he's envious. He's the son of Cain and is filled with murder. Grendel is not a demon. Grendel is human, but an evil human. He sees the happiness of other people, and he wants them crushed. So times were pleasant for the people there until finally one day, a fiend out of hell began to work his evil in the world. Grendel was the name of this grim demon haunting the marches, marauding around the heath and the desolate fens. He had dwelt for a time in misery among the banished monsters, Cain's clan, whom the Creator had outlawed and condemned as outcasts. For the killing of Abel, the Eternal Lord had exacted a price. Cain got no good from committing the murder because the Almighty made him anathema, and out of the curse of his exile there sprang ogres and elves and evil phantoms and a giants who too strove with God time and time again until he gave them their reward. So we see from the beginning references to the monotheistic God as creator, but here again, specifically to the Judeo-Christian God as he's contrasted with this first murderer recorded in the Bible, Cain. You know, the in the Bible account, that's from the book of Genesis, and in the first book of the Bible, that would be Genesis 3 and 4, there are two brothers, Cain and Abel, and they both present offerings to God. You know, they present gifts. We don't really know what they are, but we do know that God respect, respects Abel's gifts or offerings, but he does not respect Cain's offerings. We're not told why God doesn't respect Cain's gifts specifically. What we are told is that Cain was angry and his countenance fell. God looks at Cain and I'll quote him and he says this, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Well, what was wrong with King's sacrifice? We know he didn't do it well. Instead of bringing up his game to compete with his high-achieving brother, he takes the opposite approach. Cain does not rule over sin. Instead of bringing a better sacrifice to God, he goes to his brother and kills him. This is the first recorded instance of violence in the Bible. As a result, Cain is exiled from the community. God puts a mark on him so that no one will kill him in retribution, but he is not allowed in community again. He's excluded, in a sense, from the Mead Hall. Grendel is a son of Cain. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot to think about psychologically here. Uh, I think many of us can identify with the story of jealousy at the success of others. And all of us have felt the sting of our own inadequacies um, as we've offered up sacrifices to different higher authorities, you know, whatever God represents psychologically here. 
uh, is something divine, but sometimes it's also something very human. And it's interesting that Cain is represented with a choice. Go back and bring a better sacrifice or sin will come for you. And uh, this story, it, it seems to me, is a lot about taking responsibility for our choices. And this first monster has made the choice that Cain made. He chose envy and violence over doing some hard work on himself. And I think that's exactly what the poet is highlighting. This reference to Cain is not a throwaway detail. The writer dwells on it. In fact, he points out that all monsters come from Cain. So after nightfall, Grendel set out for the lofty house to see how the ring Danes were settling into it after their drink. And there he came upon them, a company of the best asleep from their feasting, insensible to pain and human sorrow. Suddenly then, the God-cursed brute was creating havoc, greedy and grim. He grabbed thirty men from their resting places and rushed to his lair, flushed up and inflamed from the raid, blundering back with the butchered corpses. (laughs) Mm, Dramatic. It gets a little dramatic. You know, Grendel, we we would read if we were going to continue reading this, uh, does this every single night. He's merciless. He never shows remorse. It says this, So Grendel ruled in defiance of right, one against all, until the greatest house in the world stood empty, a deserted wall steed. For twelve winters, seasons of woe, the Lord of Shieldings suffered under his load of sorrow. And notice how bloody this culture is. Uh, And this goes beyond Grendel. I mean, the age itself is extremely violent. Uh, Bloodshed literally is a way of life, and it's how men got respect and Retribution is at the heart of the culture during this time period. And, you know, that is historical fact, and, and we see it all over this play. If someone killed a family member, you didn't get revenge by killing one of their family members. You got revenge by killing their entire tribe. And this led to just unending war. Uh, and the only way someone could spare the death of everyone was by offering something that they call the Weird Guild or the Man Price. And it varies, but if uh, if you were somewhat important, it could be something like, you know, 300 oxen. <laughs> if you played the Weird Guild, the offended tribe wouldn't come to kill off your entire extended family. And We see that Grendel kills and never offers Weird Guild, but... Lots of people didn't, and we see nothing but warfare in a lot of the digressions in this text. Sad lays were sung around the beset king, the vicious raids and ravages of Grendel, his long and unrelenting feud, nothing but war, how he would never parlay or make peace with any Dane, nor stop his death dealing, nor pay the death price. There's that word, wheel guild. No counselor could ever expect fair reparations from those rabid hands. You know, the text goes on talking about how hopeless it all was. It says that heathens prayed to their gods. They made offerings to Isolde, swore oaths that the killer of souls might come to their aid and save their people. But the poet acknowledges that these people did not know Almighty God, so they had no one to pray to except hell. There was nothing but panic after dark and terror. And it is at this point that our hero is introduced. When he heard about Grendel, Hygelac's Thane was on home ground over in Gateland. There was no one else like him alive. In his day, he was the mightiest man on earth, high-born and powerful. He ordered a boat that would ply the waves. He announced his plan to sail the Swan's Road and search out that king. 
The famous prince who needed defenders. There's another Kenning. The Swan Road. That's another word for ocean. He's a thane. I love the thanes. What are what's a thane, Gary? Well, of course you do. <laughs> They're like modern day American football players. They're warriors. They're loyal to their leader. You know. They fight bravely, and they're rewarded with glory and wealth. And they were the king's men. If the things were tough and scary, uh, instead of facing them, you would just pay tribute to the king. And this kept the peace, uh, but it enriched the king with the best things. And the best king paid the things well so that the richest kings got the best things. Say that many times. You know. Thanes, thanes, thanes. And you're right. There's a theme, uh, a thane theme. So all modern sports teams work like this, uh, if you want to understand it with a kind of a sports analogy. <laughs> you know, nobody tried to keep him from going. He enlisted 14 other thanes to go with him, and they crossed the ocean. When the group of 15 gates arrived, the watchman was in shock. The text says that never before had a force under arms disembarked so openly, not bothering to ask if the sentries allowed them safe passage, nor had anyone there seen a mightier man than Beowulf. You know, they strut into this fancy meat hall with their helmets and their javelins and their decorated shields. And, you know, Beowulf is going to approach Hrothgar's herald, announcing who he is. The herald goes to Hrothgar, and Hrothgar knows who he is. He's heard his fa- who his father was. He knows about Beowulf's reputation. Well, Beowulf, though, is greater than all the things. you got to have somebody. Uh, he has the strength of 30 men in the grip of each hand. And, you know, next episode we will see how he faces Grendel. But here's Beowulf's speech as he introduces himself to Hrothgar. Greetings, Hrothgar. I am Higelac's kinsman, one of his hall troop. When I was younger, I had great triumphs. Then news of Grendel, hard to ignore, reached me at home. Sailors brought stories of the plight you suffer in this legendary hall, how it lies deserted, empty, and useless once the evening light hides itself under heaven's dome. So every elder and experienced councilman among my people supported my resolve to come here to you, King Hrothgar, because all knew of my awesome strength. They had seen me bolstered in the blood of enemies when I battled and bound five beasts, raided a troll nest in the night sea and slaughtered sea brutes. I have suffered extremes and avenged the gates. Their enemies brought it upon themselves. I devastated them. Now I mean to be a match for Grendel. Settle the outcome in a single combat. And so my request, O king of bright Danes, dear prince of the shieldings, friend of the people and their ring of defense, my one request is that you won't refuse me who have come this far the privilege of purifying Harawat with my own men to help me and nobody else. I have heard, moreover, that the monster scorns in his reckless way the use of weapons. Therefore, to heighten Hygelic's fame and gladden his heart, I hereby renounce sword and the shelter of the broad shield, the heavy warboard, hard to hand is ha- hand to hand is how it will be, a life and death fight with the fiend. Whichever one death fells must deem it a just judgment by God. If Grendel wins, it will be a gruesome day. He will glut himself on the gates and the war hall, swoop without fear on that flowered manhood as of others before. Then my face won't be there to be covered in death. He will carry me away as he goes to ground, gorged and bloodied. He will run gloating with my raw corpse and feed on and alone in a cruel frenzy, fouling his moorness. No need then to lament for long or lay out my body. If the battle takes me, send back my breast webbings. Then Wieland fashioned and Hrothron gave me to Lord Higelik. Fake goes ever as fate must. Um, he sounds pretty confident. 
You know, uh, no weapons against a monster who's been killing for 15 years. Uh, Beowulf the Thane is a young warrior who thinks he can bring back order into the hall and uh, he can bring order out of the chaos. And he has something to prove and he clearly believes fate is on his side. Yes, he does. And next episode, we will see what happens. It's clear that Beowulf is good, Grendel evil. What does the ancient poet think is the answer to fighting clear and obvious evil? What's the answer when a monster invades paradise? What does it take to be a thane, to be a hero? We shall see. (laughs) It'll be great. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this first of three episodes as we discuss this foundational work of English poetry. As always, we encourage you to check out our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Look at all the teaching aids. Hey, maybe even get you a cool t-shirt. Check us out on all of our social media. And thanks for being with us today. Peace out. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.